Welcome to the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. This is Dan Worley, one of your hosts. I'm joined by Daniel Wallach, the other host. Dan, how are you today? I'm doing well, Dan. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, I think I'm still recovering from the copious amounts of food that I ate. I was noticeably tired all day today after falling asleep during the uh, Redskins-Cowboys game yesterday. How was yours? Uh, mine was uh, similar. I, I ate more than copious amounts of food, and I passed out on my sis- in my sister's guest room. Uh, uh, probably triple servings of, of turkey and uh, seafood. There was nothing that I, that I failed to touch uh, in the buffet. And I was supposed to go out last night uh, with a few people, and I just I, I couldn't I couldn't rise myself uh, from my slumber. So it was a very uh, early night for Dan Wallach, and gave me a little more sleep, which uh, I could have used. I've been operating on five hours, five and a half hours sleep for much of the last week, so it was good to have a, a real night, uh, early night in. So anyway, a lot has been happening in our uh, sports law world. Even though we're sleeping, sports law is far from asleep. Uh, a tremendous amount of new issues that have uh, emerged in the last week or two. I mean, where do you want to start? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we, we talked before this and we just said, well, let's Instead of picking one, let's kind of do an end of November recap, and we had all these yeah. ideas. So I thought we would, you know, kind of touch on eight to ten minutes of each, or whatever, however it shakes out. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think one good place to start, we can kind of get this one out of the way, is uh, you know a case that we've done multiple podcasts on, including our our first podcast, and that's the Derrick Rose case. And obviously, uh, we saw a few days before before the deadline. Jane Doe's attorneys filed a notice of appeal to the Ninth Circuit, uh, and, and you know the Ninth Circuit since opened a case. They've set a briefing schedule. That briefing schedule is pretty far out. You know, I think <clears throat> I think the the two dates that they set plus a third that's uh, two weeks past that puts us the first appellate brief due May first, and then the final one due June fourteenth. I mean, six, six months away. I mean, that's uh, that's mind-boggling that uh, the, the schedule would be that relaxed. But I, but I suppose that's how the Ninth Circuit operates. I mean, in most federal or state appeals that I've that I've handled in other circuits and other states, uh, you pretty much go with your first brief. You know, seventy days from the filing of a notice of appeal. Here, uh, the first brief is like six months after the filing of the notice of appeal. What does that What does that tell you about the about the timing here? Well, it's overcrowded out there, clearly, and. You know, it's just something that it's just going to go away from from the media now, and, and I think that there's still a question of whether the actual appeal will go forward. You know, as we saw, I don't know if we've talked about it on this podcast or not, but Rose's attorneys filed a request for uh, court costs and fees uh, in the amount of I think it was around seventy thousand dollars, maybe ninety thousand. But uh, I think both of these moves have the potential to kind of cancel each other out in a settlement, possibly with you know, Doe agreeing to drop the appeal in exchange for them dropping the request for costs. That's a possibility. You know, I think these things are all sort of leverage at this point. We don't know whether or not she actually wants to go ahead with an appeal. It's obviously another expensive en- endeavor. Uh, you know, filing the notice of appeal, which starts the process, is, is very simple and very cost not doesn't cost a lot. So that's something that, that she just, you know, kind of would do out of a knee-jerk reaction. So, um it interesting to see where this goes forward. And also we heard from Rose's attorneys who, when I think, you know, maybe 10 days after the verdict, 
there were some rumblings about an appeal, and they said that they would call such an appeal, you know, fruitless and sanctionable. So we'll see if they back well, their words up uh, and I mean, go after sanctions at this point. You, you know, to, to call an appeal following a jury trial in a case where summary judgment was denied, to call that sanctionable, I think is beyond the pale. I think the real issue here is the one you alluded to, uh, the issue of cost. Uh, I mean, uh, Jane Doe had several options available to her, the notice of appeal being the last one uh, following uh, uh, she could have moved for a new trial. I mean, there were, there were uh, two post-trial motions that Doe could have filed uh, with, with, I think it's Judge Fitzgerald in the lower court. And the fact that her attorneys bypassed both of those post-judgment motion um, um, alternatives indicates to me that financial considerations were a big part of this uh, because it would have been a knee-jerk reaction for a paying client to file a motion for a new trial and to ask for judgment notwithstanding the verdict, which would be to flip the result. Uh, but to file both those motions would have entailed hundreds, I don't, I don't know, probably several weeks' worth of attorney time, and the, and, and the cash register would keep ringing, and she's not in a position to pay for it. And the, the two attorneys uh, are working on a contingent fee basis. They aren't being paid for their time. They only recover if they, uh, if they ultimately prevail and get a damage award. So I think this was a, a move uh, recognizing the obvious that they were not going to change Judge Fitzgerald's mind. I mean, the, 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 the judge who made the evidentiary rulings against them and issued the jury instructions is certainly not going to grant a new trial based on any mistakes he made. Uh, so for that reason, I think they went straight to an appeal, and it, it kicks the can, it kicks the, the, the financial consideration can down the road. They don't have to worry about uh, who's going to pay for a brief or whether to hire an appellate lawyer. They won't have to worry about that for a little while. So uh, if, if, if I were handling a paying client's case, the first move I would have done is file a motion for a new trial in the, in the district court. So I think fin financial considerations are at the heart of this. Yeah, and that was kind of followed the theme of the trial. We discussed this before, but you know, if you're really leaving every stone unturned, you're going to file these motions and and take every bite mm -hmm. of the apple you possibly can. And and we saw, you know, there were some financial restrictions that may have hampered her ability to put on her possible, uh, you know, prosecution. I would, maybe that's the wrong word. Best case possible moving forward. And so uh, again, it's kind of a constant theme. And, and as you mentioned, like those those motions were almost certainly going to be denied. But I, I think. Uh, if this is a corporation or a high-paying client, they, they would have gone forward with them anyway. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the way I hand, I'm sorry. I, I no, go ahead. I was going to kind of turn the page. No, no, so I, I'd like to hear how you. I mean, <laughs> I mean, once once a case comes in the door uh, in my firm or or in my experience, whether it's a, a paying client on an hourly basis or a contingent fee uh, client. I handle both cases the same. I'm not looking to cut corners because one client isn't you know, able to pay me on an hourly basis. So you have to treat the two types of clients similarly. Otherwise, you're going to compromise your case if you are cutting corners because the, 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 the shortcuts that you take during pretrial discovery and during depositions are going to come back to bite you at the trial. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I mean that, that's one of the problems and, and one, of the, one of the truths of our justice system, that there is a disparity between those who are in a position to hire the best available legal talent and pay them a, a fair price versus those who uh, either get court-appointed lawyers 
or have to uh, uh, you know open up the yellow pages to find someone to take the case on a, on a contingency basis. So th- this is a perfect example. I mean, uh, the, the merits may have been correct, uh, but there was certainly a sizable advantage in the strength of the lawyering in favor of Derek Rose. Yeah, and it, speaking of which, I think Joaquin McCoy, who who was one of Doe's attorneys who came on late has been in front of the media a lot. I think that was part of their strategy, obviously, when they held the press conference with her, with you and I were a part of a few weeks leading up to trial. Please, They've never been bashful with the media. Right, right. Please settle. Please settle. We don't want to try this case. Right. Uh, and but, I don't know if you uh, saw they, it, they, but in the last few days, he, he was interviewed again by the media, and he, he gave kind of a tip on what he thought would be included in the appeal. So I thought that might be worth our time for a minute to discuss and that is he thought that judge fitzgerald misapplied the rape shield law specifically and the rape shield law um prohibits evidence of past sexual history uh to make a conclusion that she would be more willing to do it again if she was quote unquote some kind of slut in the past or you, you get the idea um and so uh he's arguing that they misapplied that because the judge actually allowed in allowed them to testify that uh, the co-defendants, and I believe Rose as well, they all testified that she engaged in consensual acts at Derek Rose's house earlier in the night with them. And so that was the type of information that she was seeking to keep out. The judge let it in, and supposedly, according Mm -hmm. at least to this appeal, uh, or at least to this interview, that is going to be at least the headline basis for Rose's appeal. I mean, was there anything else that stuck out to you during the trial that you can remember? I know it's been, a, I'm already forgetting all the details, but we're, we're uh, past it. But, um, uh, if that's their lead issue, uh, I, I don't think they're going to get the, they're going to get the, uh, judgment overturned. What I'm, what I'm looking, looking at in particular are the, all the evidentiary rulings. Um, it, it seems like Rose, Rose's side, uh, prevailed on every evidentiary battle and either keeping in evidence or, uh, prohibiting evidence, uh, so maybe one of them standing alone may not have been, uh, you know, may not have been outcome determinative. But when you look at several of those evidentiary rulings, uh, particularly the ruling which uh, excluded the testimony of one of her friends, who, who uh, you know, who she spoke with like six days later or seven days later, uh, again, these seem like like very low level evidentiary uh, decisions. But but when you look at all of them, brick by brick. Uh, maybe they can make a persuasive case that the judge's exclusion of evidence um, materially prejudiced her case. Yeah, I agree. In, I an, agree. in an unfair way, but, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know which of the jury instructions seems the most flawed. I mean, but what, what strikes me is that the jury never reached the consent issue. Right, that was, right? I mean, that was they, the they, huge issue that, I, that we both took away from it. Um, and I think we didn't, at least I didn't pick up on that until... We actually saw the filled out verdict form uh, that, you know, they just basically had to hit the first bullet of sexual battery and it didn't get to the second bullet, which was consent. And you're like, wait a minute, doesn't there have to be have to be a finding of dissent, I mean, of consent? It was kind of bizarre. So we'll be interesting to see if that is included in the appeal as well. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, how, how does this affect Derrick Rose next season? I mean, we're, we're uh, based on the timetable that the Ninth Circuit has laid out, the last brief will be filed in the middle of June, uh, 15 days before the start of free agency. Uh, the oral argument, if there is an oral argument, probably won't be until the fall. And any decision rendered by the Ninth Circuit, assuming that there is oral argument, won't take place until 2018. In your view, is, is there a cloud over Derrick Rose's head while this case is on appeal, or has he been vindicated until the result gets changed? I think it might be the latter. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think he's been vindicated. I think it's something that's behind him. Uh, and I think, frankly, and not speaking for all teams, but many teams would, would look at it as more of a distraction sort of an issue. And the trial was certainly a distraction as much as they tried to avoid that issue. He obviously left training camp with a new team. So any team, you know, whether it was the Bulls or the Knicks when they were evaluating whether he was going to be on their team for this season, they had to take into account that this was a possibility. Whereas an appeal, it's almost completely lawyer driven. You know, he's not going to have to miss any time. Uh, you know, the only issue that may come up is if if she if Jane Doe wins the appeal and they grant a new trial, then we have to go through this all over again. But that's so wins. far out, right? Yeah. And it's so far. But two eighteen, yeah, yeah. But it could it could in some way maybe make a make a team hesitant to to grant him a you know a five year max deal if there are some if there's some potential that you know he could. Uh, in, in, in some, you know, miracle of, you know, getting the, the new trial gets granted and, and she wins that there could be disciplinary action down the road. I, I think this is pie in the sky stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I think the teams that will consider Derrick Rose as a player next season are going to be far more interested in how many games he was able to play this year and his assist to turnover ratio than they are in the hypothetical possibility that uh, uh, he may have to uh, stand trial on a civil case where the testimony is conflicting. I, I think his performance will dictate it much, much more than any uh, hypothetical possibility of, of, of further trials. Yeah, I agree. And, and we also heard that somehow the criminal investigation is still open. And I don't know if they're moving forward with that or what, but you'd think that they would have closed it out and moved on by now it, or done something. But it's still going on, still pending, according to quotes from the LAPD. So... Um, well, the lead detective is dead, so uh, the new the new detective who was assigned to the case has to basically uh, you know start from scratch. I I think I think it's more um, you know a statement without necessarily any weight behind it. I mean, they have to say it's still open because to say otherwise would mean that they've vindicated him, and I don't think the LAPD is prepared to go that far. Yeah, so I, I I I'd be skeptical that anything is going to come out of the uh, out of the criminal side uh, anytime soon unless unless there's a trial and more testimony comes out. Yeah, I agree. All right, enough enough Derek Rose, I think, yep. for one day. Let's move on. Uh, and speaking of digesting my Thanksgiving meal, I mentioned I was watching football yesterday, and I saw one Ezekiel Elliott again having a big game for the Cowboys, who are just having quite the incredible season with the two rookies at the, at the star of it. So, um, you know, we were kind of talking earlier today, and just the timing of this, you know, we still – this is basically a non-news story at this point, right? Because we've heard all the background. We've heard the comments from the NFL that they're investigating, but we still haven't heard a yes or a no as far as discipline. Well, as, as, we, as we get into weeks 10, 11, and 12, uh, the, the likelihood or prospect of the NFL uh, disciplining uh, Ezekiel Elliott this year becomes remote. Uh, you know, because 
all the information that the league needs to make a decision as to discipline, they already have. They have the, the investigate. They have the police incident reports from the Columbus uh, Police Department, from the Aventura Police Department. The ex girlfriend or, or 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 the woman who was the the alleged victim is cooperating with the NFL. So um, what else could the NFL be waiting for? So at this point in time. You know, when the, when the Cowboys are sitting with a ten and one one record, it becomes a much more difficult and and uh, awkward situation for the league to impose a suspension on the best player on the team with the best record in the in, in the NFL on the verge of the playoffs. Right. It, it becomes unrealistic. <laughs> right, but we've doesn't mean they should doesn't mean they shouldn't do it or shouldn't consider doing it. Tom Brady might disagree with you, but um, so that but that's the, really the question is like should any of those football considerations matter? And I think absolutely not. I think they should investigate it when they have all the information. They mm -hmm. should make a determination based on their policy. And so if they are waiting and they are saying, well, we don't want to screw this up because, you know, we have Zeke playing in the primetime slot on Thanksgiving Day and we don't want to anger people, um, that's not good either, obviously. So, well, I mean, that, that's select. That raises issues of selective enforcement. Are you, go, are you going to enforce it against teams only with losing records, or are you going to enforce it against teams and players only during the off season or at the very beginning of a season? Uh, you know, when is you know since when has there been this sort of sacred cow that you don't uh, issue disciplinary decisions in weeks ten, eleven through you know twelve and 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 so forth? Uh, so I think the longer the league waits. Uh, the worse it will look in terms of how it's viewed as uh, meeting out even-handed discipline. Right. Uh, because damned if they do, damned if they don't. If they if they if they wait until the end of the season, it's unfair for the Cowboys potentially. If they wait until the off season, it's it's justice delayed, justice denied. Uh, so when is a good time to do it? And, and and I think the league realizes or may realize it, it's in a it's in a very difficult situation where it's whipsawed. No matter what it does, it's going to come under fire. Exactly. And speaking of selective uh, suspensions and suspect, I can't say the word, but you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> um, the Josh Brown case, right? So he still hasn't been suspended by the league, and, and it, it kind of begs the question, will he be suspended? I, I, think, I think it's pretty much agreed that his time as an NFL player is over, but the question becomes, will the NFL actually announce a suspension based on the new findings in his case? And, and clearly they uh, were moving forward with a separate investigation. So that investigation has to end up one way or the other. Now, uh, you know, from a PR perspective, it probably draws the smallest amount of fire to <clears throat> him if they just don't do anything, right? So uh, that's a really interesting question, I think, is what, what does the NFL do with players who are no longer in the league and we've seen with Johnny Manziel that uh, he, he hasn't been formally suspended, but somebody, one of the NFL reporters, and I can't remember who it is, um, reported a week or two ago that any, t any team that's interested in signing Johnny Manziel should know that he has a six-game suspension waiting for him when he gets back in the league. So there's obviously this plan that they have for Manziel. Yeah which would have a suspension waiting for him, which makes him, you know, virtually unsignable, one would imagine, unless some team is really willing yeah. to, to take that huge of a risk on him. So it's just another, uh, another yeah, undefined rule that's making it terrible enforcement. Go ahead. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan, but I think, I, I think the bigger problem for Johnny Manziel is that he's not particularly good at football. 
despite his nickname of Johnny Manziel. If he was if he was a player that had demonstrated uh, you know success at the National Football League, he'll get as many chances as possible. But so far at this stage of his career, he hasn't shown enough uh, for a team to overcome all of those issues with him. And I, I, I and I want to get back to Josh Brown for a second. I don't I don't necessarily agree that that uh, you know he'll never play football again. If if I if, if I'm rep, if I'm advising Josh Brown. Um, I'm not looking at litigation with the NFL because of the reality that he's probably not going to play again if, 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 he, fights, if he fights the league, takes him to court, he's going to be stuck in purgatory for the next year, year and a half. If I'm Josh Brown's advisors, I reach out to the NFL for some kind of a consensual uh, suspension, almost like what Arnaldus Chapman did with Major League Baseball, that, that the NFL and the representatives of the player uh, try to hash out some kind of an agreement. Well, we'll give you X number of games. Uh, you promise not to appeal. Uh, and, and it's a win-win for everyone. And at the end of that kind of situ- at the end of that scenario, if it's four games or six games or eight games, let's face it, he's not going to play again this year. No one is signing Josh Brown in the six games that remain. So why not just uh, you know formulate a, a six-game suspension? And this way, uh, the NFL gets uh, gets its uh, it gets its PR victory. They get their pound of flesh. Uh, the public views the suspension as being a fair suspension. And maybe Josh Brown can, uh, can can be invited to a training camp next year because it doesn't serve him any good uh, to fight a fight knowing that he's probably unhirable anyway. Yeah, there's a few questions wrapped in that. I mean, I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's, from that scenario, a good one that plays out. But you have to wonder what the NFLPA would think of that, um, considering how the, how the NFL completely botched the investigation and then now mm-hmm. they're going to come back and accept – a suspension is essentially setting precedent for a larger suspension for Brown. And I can't remember. Is well, didn't, it happen, didn't it happen with Chapman? Uh, I mean, uh, well, it, I mean, the they situation... didn't suspend him twice, right? So they, oh, right. all three, I think all three or four of the MLB suspensions under obviously the MLB domestic violence policy have been negotiated like that uh, with maybe maybe not the most recent, uh, but the first two or three were. Reyes was the same way. Uh, Mm. And I think Manfred was applauded for that because, okay, we're setting some baseline standards, but the the MLB uh, domestic violence policy also doesn't have a defined number of games. So you look at that compared to the NFL policy. The NFL policy says the minimum is six games unless there's these aggregating or mitigating factors. Mm. And so if we're now going less than six where there's no mitigating factors, it, it's setting it's just basically weakening the policy unnecessarily. So if you're actually confident in your policy, you should just in, use the policy and not negotiate with the player if you're the NFL. That's my opinion. But um, but, 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 but by the same token, if the NFL can secure a promise from the player not to challenge uh, any further suspension, uh, it, it establishes – uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, enhanced, uh, you know, some kind of precedent to establish at least a minimum number of games where there are mitigating factors here. And let's not forget that these admissions from Josh Brown, uh, you know, uh, arose in the context of of marital therapy. This was uh, this was Josh Brown. And I'm not you know, I'm not trying to you know mitigate what he did or or, or, or say that he's a great guy. But he's made an attempt in his life and in his relationship at some point to, uh, you know, open up about his 
about his behavior. And, and I'm not saying that that's privileged and it shouldn't be part of the disciplinary proceeding. But but let, let's not let's not forget that he did ma- he, he did make an attempt here uh, to, to be candid about the nature of his relationship with his wife. And maybe that could be used as somewhat of a mitigating factor to downgrade the suspension from a six game baseline, maybe to four games or five games. I mean, if I'm if, if I'm Josh Brown, I'm thinking of what do I what do I need to do? to 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 uh, have my career become viable again because right now kickers are fungible you don't realize you, they're like good lawyers you don't realize you need one uh, until a, a kicker botches a kick a point after uh, they're not truly appreciated until a game is blown due to a miss due to a missed field goal but he is uh, in a situation now where nobody is going to consider hiring him and he's one of the best place kickers in the NFL. So so if I'm Josh Brown, I'm focusing more on career preservation than the principle of whether they have the right to suspend me a second time. And I would advise Josh Brown to try to work out a deal with the National Football League to accept some enhanced suspension that allows him closure by the end of this year that could make him at least uh, viable uh, for an invitation to training camp. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, the NFLPA is secondary. The NFL, if I, Josh Brown's interests trump the NFLPA's interest, at least from Josh Brown's perspective. Right. I think the only other issue there is more of a technical one is that you can't serve a suspension unless you're on a team's roster. Um, mm-hmm. So he got, he's been cut from the Giants. He was originally placed on the commissioner's exempt list. Then he was cut by the Giants. And so another team would actually have to sign him in order for him to serve the suspension. And so that, I mean, that's just another reason why I think he'll never – Play in the league again because they're gonna basically a team's gonna have to take on whatever suspension it may be in order for him to sign it, and they're gonna have to go through this four or six or five whatever game span of not having him as a player and endure the you know the PR nightmare that's gonna come their way when they sign him. So uh, that's another sort of technicality. Just to could could they, could they, Dan could they potentially convert some of the uh, paid leave into a paid suspension? I mean, salary. He's getting he's drawing a salary from the New York Giants while he's on the uh, exempt list. Maybe you could take four, five, or six of those game checks, convert it into a suspension, and just call it a day because the net effect of this paid leave would be a suspension without pay. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I, mean, might- I, think, I think technically it's a good point. I've never seen that done before by the NFL, and I think we, we, those who follow the rules closely. We've seen a lot with, of things not done before. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And but I, I think they may draw a lot of heat from that. I'm not sure the NFL wants Josh Brown back in the league. I don't know. I could be wrong, but um, it definitely doesn't you know portray them in a great light. And again, I mean, I, although I think Josh Brown's you know a pretty good kicker, I don't follow the Giants that closely. Um, you know, I think kickers in a sense are a dime a dozen and he's on the older end too. I think he's 38 years old. So, um, but, but not last weekend, how many extra points were missed? Right. Extra points that have become was... like forty-yard field goals. I think I think place kickers, good place kickers, are, are going to enjoy a renaissance unless they unless they legislate point afters, you know, out of existence by making uh, you know rules to encourage teams to go for a two-point conversion. Uh, but if if what we saw last week is the beginning of a trend, I think you'll find Josh Brown on an NFL uh, you know on, on an NFL roster uh, by this time next year because there aren't too many. While there are a lot of kickers, uh, there aren't too many good ones that are money in the bank on a point after yeah we need to start finding some way to make bets on this podcast like that because i would bet against that but 
I don't know what, what our wages you would? would be. Yeah, I would say he's not. I think he'll be back. No, I don't think so. I mean, you look at never. We don't need to go down this this rabbit hole. Uh, I think the one player who's defied the uh, domestic violence playing thing is Greg Hardy because he's an extremely talented player, and, and I think it just got to the point with Greg Hardy. He was given second and third chances. He was just such a toxic personality. In addition to all this baggage, it just wasn't worth it. We saw with with the Cowboys, but. Um, you know, people like Ray Rice, who's, again, someone who's at a position where they could find... He was very good for a long period of time. He was kind of sort of the end of his age range, uh, had high mileage as a runner, had this extra baggage. But, I mean, granted, it was a horrible incident he was involved in, but nobody has handled it better since then than Ray Rice. I mean, he's really been the role model for how to come out and conduct yourself after having a terrible incident in your life. And so if a guy like that can't get another chance, then it's just hard to see a kicker being the, another one that does. But that's just my opinion. We can, you know, agree to disagree on that I, one, I, No, I think there's validity to what you're saying. I mean, kickers and, and, and uh, 30-year-old running backs kind of fall into the same category. Uh, but a kicker's, uh, you know, career uh, expectancy uh, is probably twice or yeah. in some cases three times as long as a running back's career. We've seen uh, Vinatieri, uh, you know, remain, um, you know, a top kicker in the NFL into his early 40s. Um, and, and, you know, Josh Brown is not the number one or number two paid place kicker in all of the NFL, but he's certainly in the top half. And as, as uh, extra points and, and as the performance begins to ebb on a week-by-week basis, maybe he will get a second chance. A large part of it depends on what the NFL does with him. And more importantly, as you, as you uh, alluded to with Ray Rice, how he comports himself going forward. Yep. I mean, even Marv Albert got a second chance. There are, there are second acts throughout, uh, you know, throughout sports, throughout entertainment, and throughout life. And what Josh Brown did was reprehensible, but uh, I, have, I have a difficult time accepting that he will never and should never get a second chance. Yeah. And I think to illustrate our point, I, I think both of us would agree, and I'm speaking for you, but I think I can speak pretty freely here that if if Ezekiel Elliott does get suspended there's no doubt in our minds that he's getting a second chance as a player <laughs> no question man that would that be the next great sports law case think about it if, if, if Elliott is suspended for six games and it could possibly intrude into the playoffs this would be like Deflategate and Adrian Peterson compressed into a two three two week three week period with an appeal with a court case I mean this this could potentially be if something happens during the 2016 NFL season I would put the likelihood of, of something happening this year probably at 10 percent or less uh, given how far down the road we are, but this has the potential to blow up into the biggest sports law story of 2016. I agree. Definitely one to follow. And if you're more interested, I that, hope I it happens. Suggest, yeah. <laughs> right, be, suggest... right, be, right before the Giants game, right before the Giants game, uh, it would, would be ideal. <laughs> Hopefully the Giants playoff game, right? Um, if you're more, if you're interested in that, go back and check out, we've done, uh, two podcasts earlier, at least parts of two podcasts on, on the Elliott case and then kind of how it's a fascinating mm-hmm. study in, 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 in domestic violence policy application. But I think it's time to move forward. I think it's time to move on to some yeah. daily fantasy. And we have um, some big news, I think, that was inevitable. And I think that a lot of people, such as yourself, saw coming for some period of time. But it, it was finally announced, I think, in the past... 10 days or so that DraftKings and FanDuel have officially merged 
you want to give us a little more background and tell us sort of what that means legally and, and sort of the timeline moving forward? Yeah, well, well, the merger is not an actual merger because it ha- uh, the, the, a proposed merger agreement between the number one and number two daily fantasy sports companies, which between them control 95% or more of the daily fantasy sports market, a merger of that magnitude uh, will, will have to endure or go through a, uh, a, a merger approval process from either the Federal Trade Commission or from the Department of Justice. Uh, while some have speculated that this process could take a year or longer, it could really take as little as 30 days. I think the next step, uh, I, I'm not going to evaluate what this means for the industry. I mean, I mean there, are, there are a lot of considerations here, but I, I think, the, I, I think the, uh, the takeaway is that this is going to take a fair amount of time. It could be as little as 30 days, or it could be as long as a year or more. It depends what antitrust or what anti-competitive effects are identified by the Federal Trade Commission or the, or, or the uh, Department of Justice. The first step in all this, though, is uh, DraftKings and FanDuel have to notify the DOJ and the FTC through the filing of a pre-merger notification form. Uh, That's a form that companies uh, that are going to engage in a combination or merger have to file with the federal government if they exceed a certain like dollar threshold. I think the dollar threshold of the deal is $78 million. And DraftKings and FanDuel uh, you know, have been spoken about as having valuations of at one time in excess of $1 billion. So I, I think this is easily a transaction that will exceed or trip the threshold for a federal antitrust review. And, um, you know, the, the, the next step is determining, um, well, we know the next step will be the filing of a pre-merger notification form, but ironically, we won't have to wait for the change in the presidential administration to have some uh, FTC or DOJ review. The process is going to move very quickly. If the form hasn't already been filed, it will be filed imminently, and then there's a 30-day waiting period. And during this period, the Department of Justice or the or the FTC will make a determination as to which of those two agencies are going to review the proposed merger. I think it's going to be the FTC because historically uh, the, the FTC has developed an expertise in the area of high-tech industries, internet companies. So I think as between the two, uh, the FTC is going to take over. And what they will initially do is send out a request for additional information. And while that request request is pending, the merger can't close. And I believe um, the next step will then be on DraftKings and FanDuel to provide the information requested by the FTC, which will largely be information about the two companies, the potential, you know, the, the competitive marketplace. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that is going to be undertaken by the, by the, by the uh, Obama administration, not by the Trump administration, because the process is already underway. Interesting. And it's, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, these these companies essentially competed with each other so hard over the last few years, especially over the last probably 18 months or so, mm-hmm. and had a real disdain for each other. I think for those that haven't followed it too closely, you know, I don't, and I don't know them personally, but I know that there's been stories of the owners of the two companies not getting along too well. Can you, do you have any idea of sort of what led ultimately to them making amends enough to come together and sort of how this is going to look moving forward? Well, a, a year ago, they were they were bitter enemies. And then the shared uh, battle over regulation and lobbying, I mean, they've been side by side in the bunker 
working towards a mutual uh, objective of persuading uh, different state legislatures uh, to provide legal clarity for the DFS industry. And, and that's an objective that both DraftKings and FanDuel uh, share. In fact, they, they, ha- they have the same lobbyist. Uh, they've been fighting the same legal battles, uh, lawsuits that are brought in the class action context, and, more, and most importantly, the lobbying effort has been a joint one. So I believe the tenor of the relationship changed significantly once the, uh, once the scandals and the controversies sort of emerged. They were basically uh, in a unified position on almost every issue because what affects one company affects the other. So I believe, I believe the, um, um, the rumor or the, the prior, you know, the, 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 the hostility that may have existed previously softened by virtue of, of, of having a shared agenda and, and being, and be, be, being in the, you know, in, in the, in the bunker together, so to speak, fighting it out, uh, you know, on, on a state by state basis there. Uh, I, I think their, their, their objectives, uh, were basically merged. And I think that, that, soften the relationship over time to the point where they communicate regularly and freely. And I think there's a healthy respect from, from, from each company towards their competitor. Great. That's, you know, interesting to follow moving forward. And just maybe let's just touch on one sports betting issue before we move on to something else. It kind of makes sense to talk about at the same time. And that's the Christie two case um, up in front of SCOTUS. Uh, You know, I think there's been, what five amicus briefs filed so far? Or, well, it, the deadline's passed. So four. It was four. Okay. Four, but 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 by collectively nine groups. Uh, one of the amicus briefs was filed by five states as a joint product. Uh, I believe the states are Louisiana, Mississippi, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and um, oh, I'm missing the fifth state. So, in, in following the Christie one case, three states filed an amicus brief jointly. This time we've got five. Uh, But more notably, the uh, casino industry weighed in with an amicus brief. The American Gaming Association, the trade group representing the United States gaming and casino industry, filed an amicus brief, which is really surprising. I had a behind-the-scenes role in that, although my my efforts were not reflected on uh, on the filing. But I certainly was an early mover and an early advocate for the AGA filing an amicus brief, and I'm glad to see that they did. Um, Professor Ryan Roddenberg, who we, who we know very well from sports law circles, filed an amicus brief in his own name as a sports law expert. Uh, and then the fourth amicus brief was filed by two, three conservative think tanks, the Cato Foundation, the Pacific Legal Foundation, and I don't remember the name of the third group. So they filed a joint uh, amicus brief. So all in all... Ten different groups were represented. I said nine earlier. Ten different groups were represented in this amicus filing, and uh, this is important uh, for you know for purposes of framing the uh, issue before the Supreme Court. Most most cases that are accepted for review by the Supreme Court have anywhere from between four and nine amicus briefs. I, I think the theory is, if nobody else cares about the issue, why should the Supreme Court care? So at a baseline level for, 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 for New Jersey's sports betting uh, fight to have real um, um, uh, gravitas before the Supreme Court, it was imperative to have um, a sizable or significant number of appellate brief, uh, amicus briefs. And I think five states backed by the American Gaming Association, is significant weight behind New Jersey's efforts. Does it mean that the court is going to grant cert in this case? Uh, it, it's highly unlikely, but 
Those who predict that for the same reasons the Supreme Court denied the Christie 1 petition, they'll also deny the Christie 2 petition. I don't think it necessarily necessarily follows that uh, cert will be denied in this case because cert was denied in the last case. What is happening, the issue that's framed for the Supreme Court's consideration of Christie 2 is a much stronger assault on state sovereignty. In Christie 1, the argument was that um, by preventing states from enacting a sports betting regime, you're violating the 10th Amendment. Uh, that was a much tougher case to make because um, the, the commandeering doctrine only comes into play when states are being required to do something or to carry out federal policy. The Christie II case is a little bit different because in that case, the argument raised by the state of New Jersey and by the Amici were that states are now forbidden from even repealing their own laws and that the commandeering uh, occurs by virtue of the fact that states are required to maintain their own unwanted sports betting prohibitions under state law and are required to devote resources to enforce those unwanted state, state laws. So the commandeering that's taking place in the Christie II scenario is a little bit more pernicious than the commandeering in Christie 1, which didn't require the states to do a damn thing. So that being said, it's still a long shot, but I think it's a better, it's a better case than Christie 1 for the reasons I just outlined. And we're going to learn by the middle of January whether the Supreme Court will grant certiorari because this ca- the, 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 uh, the, the Supreme Court papers are going to be distributed to the justices for conference uh, some point in the first or second week of January. And I believe January 16th is the day that the Supreme Court will announce whether or not it will grant cert. And I want to discuss sort of a very unlikely yet very interesting to me scenario that could happen. And it's something that you mm-hmm. see from time to time. And I, and I was talking about it with another colleague, and um, I think it's a really interesting possibility. And that is, you know, you said that's a very minute chance that the, the court takes the case. And in almost all of these petitions, obviously the side that loses petitions the Supreme Court. The other side, in this case, is all the leagues would come and say, oh, no, Supreme Court, this isn't important. You shouldn't take this case because they wanted the, the lower level. But, I mean, do you think there's any chance that the leagues and the NCAA could come out and say, we also think you should take this this case, SCOTUS. We think that this is an important issue. And I think why this is, you know, although it's probably a small possibility, I think why it, it is a possibility is that we've seen there's going to be other challenges, obviously, maybe in other states. There's going to be another challenge almost certainly in New Jersey where they're, where they're already proposing laws that is the sort of the nuclear option of deregulating it, and the leagues definitely don't want that to happen. So, I mean, is it something where at this point, you know, the the powers that be at the leagues kind of come together and they say, hey, let's just see if we can get this thing figured out and get a Supreme Court opinion on the table, whether it's in our favor, or we move on and start figuring out how to regulate sports gambling. What do you think about that? I mean, it's an interesting idea. I just don't think there's any chance of it happening, and I'll explain why. If 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 the Supreme Court takes the case and declares PASPA to be unconstitutional, which would be a possible outcome if the court took the case, then states would be free to regulate and legalize sports betting as they see fit. And what would happen is a patchwork of different state approaches would emerge throughout the country, and that is that is the antithesis or the opposite of what the leagues want to the extent that the leagues support legal regulated sports betting it is only via a federally regulated system not through a state regulated system and the the 
the, the danger of the court taking the case from the league's perspective is that they that the court will scuttle PASPA and and declare it to be unconstitutional, and then and then the cat will be out of the bag. States like New Jersey, New York, Mississippi would be free to enact their own uh, you know unique sports betting schemes, and you might see uh, a, a whole bunch of inconsistent, irreconcilable sports betting regulatory structures emerge throughout the country. So if there's any um, if there's any traction within the NBA and the other sports leagues for a legal and regulated sports betting environment, and I believe that there is, despite what the NFL says, I believe the only way it's saleable to these leagues is if that it's federally regulated and that there's a uniform scheme of regulation by which states could either opt in or opt out or leagues could opt in or opt out. And uh, I, I think we're going to potentially see a federal watchdog agency. Uh, there's a lot that has to take place, but if, but if you get rid of PASPA, none of that could happen. Uh, none, none of that happens in the right short away, term. What right. happens in the short term is that the starting gate, you know, comes up, and states are free to do whatever they want. The leagues don't want that, right? And I think we've seen states that are ready to go on this too, right? I mean, there's there's New Jersey and other other places where they have the infrastructure sort of already in place where. Well, it wouldn't take that long, and, and who who would stop yeah. Joe Schmo from just legally running his own book anyway? So it's, I think that's a really good point. I, I, think, the, I think the state to watch here is Mississippi. Uh, I, you know, some of the reports coming out of the Mississippi press, uh, and, and some of the statements coming from state officials. Uh, there seems to be an appetite within Mississippi for sports betting, uh, and and they're going to be the next state to challenge PASPA. I'm pretty convinced. Uh, if it doesn't happen this year, it will happen, or if it doesn't happen in 17, it will certainly happen by 2018. So the two states that are at the top of my uh, chart for most likely to challenge PASPA would be Mississippi and maybe New York. But New York uh, has to also amend their state constitution to expand gambling. So I think New York's a little trickier. Uh, but ultimately, I think Supreme Court review uh, may be somewhat of a more of a long shot than first thought because we still only have eight justices. Right. So uh, the present the presence or, or, or the, the be, being one justice short hurts New Jersey's chances in two respects uh, in granting cert and then in winning the case on the merits. Uh, you need to have, you know, the, it, you know, at these at these weekly justice conferences, the rule of four prevails. You need to have four justices that want to hear the case to, you know, and grant cert. And if you're one judge short, that's one less voice in the room that might. Uh, be in favor of granting cert. And then even if certiorari is granted and the case is reviewed on the merits, uh, we're not going to have eight justice. We're not going to have a ninth justice, you know, by the time this case is orally argued. So New Jersey, in order to overturn the Third Circuit result, even assuming they pull a rabbit out of the hat and, and get cert granted, they're going to need five out of eight justices to win because a 4-4 tie uh, leaves the Third Circuit's decision intact. And let's say Trump takes over and, and is inaugurated January 28th. I don't care how quickly he appoints a ninth justice. Uh, it may take quite a bit of time for a, uh, for a ninth justice to be confirmed and then to become part of the case, which will be, if it was argued, would be argued no later than in, than, than in you know, May or June, if not sooner. Good point. Let's, let's move on to some, uh, some new law- lawsuits we have out there. And one of, I think one of the ones that caught both our eyes, and I 
wrote an article for it in, in a website called Off Tackle Empire, which is part of SB Nation. And it's the, the lawsuit filed by former NCAA Great. basketball player. Thank you. Uh, former NCAA basketball player Johnny Vassar, who pl- for 2015 played on Northwestern. And now we've seen Northwestern in the sports legal world lawsuit realm two times. Uh, the first time was Kane Coulter and his efforts to create a college athlete union, which ultimately failed. Um, so here, you know, this is obviously an antitrust lawsuit, and it attacks the NCAA's transfer rule. Not the first time that we've seen an attack on the NCAA transfer rule, who, you know, has been abused, I would say, um, by coaches and schools in the past and, and sort of restricting where players can or can't go. You know, we've seen we've seen loopholes and exceptions created by the NCAA, most notably, which I like to refer to as the Russell Wilson rule, where students can transfer during their either fourth or fifth year, if fourth if they've registered a year and graduated early, uh, years of eligibility without skipping a year, as long as that the the incoming school has some sort of graduate educational program that wasn't offered at their previous school, and so you know that's. Um, you'd like to think that that was a serious consideration, you know, the educational program not being available. But in all reality, I I would assume the vast majority of times it's not. Um, And I actually saw, I forget who I was watching today or yesterday on TV, but I saw a a player utilize that transfer. So in order to transfer that way, you have to graduate in three or four years at your previous school and then transfer, and you can use the remaining amounts of your eligibility. And so the quarterback that was playing this game was actually a redshirt sophomore, so he had three more years of eligibility after he graduated, and he didn't have to sit out a year. But anyway, that's sort of far afield. Here, you know, Johnny Vassar was forced to sit out a year um, and ultimately sued Northwestern and the NCAA. Uh, while I think from a legal perspective, the interesting part of this lawsuit is the attack on the NCAA transfer rule from a factual perspective, Vassar's allegations against Northwestern are the most interesting aspects here. And we saw just at least his side of the story. And again, this is only one half of the story. So take it with a huge grain of salt. We'll see what comes back from Northwestern. But we saw Chris Collins, the head head Northwestern basketball coach. And I think the uh, deputy general counsel being named in the lawsuit and a few other individuals just, just not look good. And there's a few things that caught my eye. The first was that he was put into a quote-unquote internship program that was a special internship program for students, and they essentially, and, and all the while, so I should take a step back, he played one year, was apparently, you know, apparently he was a, a fairly big recruit for Northwestern. He calls himself, I think he kind of overblows how how well recruited he was uh, in the lawsuit, but a pretty big law. One, one, of the most, one of the most heavily recruited freshmen in the country. Right. Uh, that, that's how the lawsuit characterizes him. I mean, one of the most. I, I mean, I, I haven't done any uh, you know, research to see where his ranking was, but that's, that's a pretty strong statement. But he was recruited by Syracuse, West Virginia. So some of the schools that are named in the complaint as being in the marketplace for services are some pretty serious schools. Right. And uh, so, you know, he was, a, a, especially for Northwestern, who, you know, historically doesn't have a very good basketball program, especially for the conference they play in. It's putting, putting it lightly. Yeah, being nice. I grew up close to Evanston, so I'd like to be nice to them. But um, Trivia question, Dan, trivia question. How many times has the N- how many times has Northwestern qualified for the NCAA men's basketball tournament at Division One? 
How many times have they made the big dance? I, I mean, I, I think the low-hanging fruit here is zero, but I want to say it's like one. Yes. Thank zero. Thank okay. That's school's new slogan. We're last in the Big Ten, first in sports law. There you go. I think we, I think we did it. Right <laughs> um, but but anyway. no, they're not last in the Big Ten. Uh, they actually have been uh, successful as of late. I mean, Chris Collins, uh, for those that aren't aware of his family lineage, is the son of longtime NBA player and, and coach Doug Collins. And uh, he, 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 had, he pulled a 20-win you know, season last year. It was the first 20-win season in the school's history. And he's the first coach in the last 56 years to have a, a, an overall winning record at, at Northwestern. That is a long time. And this, this, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him. This, I view this job as kind of like a, like a – uh, not his last job in, in, in you know, coaching college basketball. It's almost like a, a what's the word when you go to a mid-major school and then look for, a, for the next job. This is, a, this is a tremendous opportunity for him to launch into the stratosphere of NCAA men's basketball coaching. So, you know, he might have inherited, I, I think he recruited the player, but, but certainly there's a lot of pressure here uh, to succeed and to perform given Northwestern's history and given the 20-win season that was just completed. So it creates an atmosphere under which, if you know, if you don't perform, uh, you're going to lose your scholarship. And, you know, by the looks of this lawsuit, uh, and, and to quote the lawsuit, Northwestern engaged allegedly in shady, dirty, and underhanded behavior to run, you know, Johnny Vassar out of the program. Right. And so, so again, there was some pressure on Vassar to leave. And basically at the end of the season, uh, it was clear to him that they wanted him gone. They had called him, I think, at least on 16 occasions. They were calling his mother while she was fighting a serious illness and trying to elicit her mother, or his mother's help to convince Johnny to, to sign up and leave. And they uh, put him in this internship program, which he basically picked up garbage uh, and was you know cleaning up areas near the athletic events and sort of framed in a way that seemed to like shame him in front of fellow athletes. Um, and getting up at 7 a.m., which would immediately disqualify me for the internship program. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Especially in college. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the services that he was required to perform, I mean, I, th- I think that was probably, uh, if not shaming, it, 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 there's a menial aspect to it. And I, I, it, it look, you're talking about a, 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 you know, African-American athlete in a traditionally uh, you know, white Ivy League, uh, quasi Ivy League, you know, educational institution. It is just, you know, it, it just looks tone deaf to have athletes performing, you know, p- predominantly black athletes, but be performing these menial tasks at seven in the morning. Uh, largely, I mean, this seemed like an attempt to not just shame him, but get him to quit. Right, and I think that's. I mean, there's only so much. All of these allegations were sort of framed in a way that they were trying to push him out the door. And, you know, a few other things that they did, they named, as I mentioned, by name, the Associate General Counsel of the school, who apparently suggested to him a cash buyout of his scholarship, um, which, you know, they didn't, the way that they worded it made it sound like that there's probably not a lot of teeth there, but um, an interesting Is it written allegation. or documented? Is it documented? If he could document this, that would be, that would be pretty explosive. Not from, not from what I've seen in the complaint. He obviously hasn't attach all of his documents it seems like it was from a conversation so probably not i would assume that any lawyer worth their pay would not document something like that but um you know we've seen it before so you never know um (laughs) and speaking of documents so another way that they tried to get him out was 
while he was performing this internship program, he was having to fill out time cards. And so he alleges, and it, it seems to be true, that um, they actually, Northwestern actually went back and, and falsified time cards to show that he didn't put in all of the hours. I mean, uh, the lawsuit ultimately is a is an is an assault on the NCAA rule requiring Division One players who seek to transfer to sit out for one year. Um, the, the, this lawsuit seeks to put an end to all that by using the uh, by using the federal antitrust laws. Uh, you know, thanks in part to the Ed O'Bannon case, I think the uh, NCAA is now subjected to uh, you know scrutiny under the under the antitrust laws. And what players have to go through to to successfully transfer from one institution to the other, they have to run a gauntlet. Unlike lawyers, bankers, journalists, and even D one head coaches. Uh, all of whom are free to or change jobs or just or students. normal students, right? Yeah, students. Uh, if you're if you're a player that wants to to transfer to another institution, you 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 need to sit out for a year. But but even going beyond that, you can't even approach another school about transferring unless you uh, fill out a permission to contact form, which is approved by your school's athletic director. Imagine that. Imagine you're in a job, you're in a law firm that you can't stand and you want to move from one law firm to the other and you have to ask your current employer for permission to go job hunting. How bizarre is that? Yeah, it's definitely wild and, and very restrictive, and I think people can relate to how unfair that is. There's been a lot of pushback on the NCAA in the past to change this rule or modify it. I mean, I, so I look at this in, in a few ways, and one of the ways is that what would it look like if there was no one-year waiting period? And that, I don't know if people would want that either, and it's it's speculative, but you, you kind of started thinking about it, and... You know, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old kids can change their mind quickly if they're not playing as much as they think they should or, or something so, along those lines. And so they so can Division One head coaches. And they oh. do. I mean, we, we've seen that with, you know, I, I saw this interview with Tom Herman today, the poor guy. They put him on the spot. But he's obviously, you know, the, the big hot coach right now. And uh, he's going to be making – Definitely over five million. I tend to think closer to you know six or seven million dollars next year at probably LSU or Texas, um, and he could you know he could bail as soon as this weekend on his team. He doesn't have to wait till the end of the year. So there's definitely a lot of hypocrisy there. But I think if you think about the system in general of what it would look like if of players freely transferring, I think that. Um, certain type of programs, such as the Kentuckys, could really be hurt by this because not only are they losing players to one and done, but maybe players get there and they're being asked to sacrifice more than other schools or they don't play right away. And these are big-time recruits that are coming in and not playing right away. And those those recruits could maybe end up at some more mid-level programs where they're the star and it's more of what they signed up for from the beginning. So um, it would well, definitely be a different world out there. Well, what's the NCAA's rationale for requiring, uh, you know, players, Division One players, to sit out for a year. What, what is their, you know, their, their basis, their whole rationale for this is to help the joke. players adjust. It's a joke, is what it is. I mean, they, there's, they say it a few different places, but you know, the one that stuck to me was based on um, adjusting to the educational requirements, and it's just that's a load of it. I mean, obviously. Um, as you said, there's these other restrictions in place too, and some of the restrictions are that you know coaches can try to restrict players from not transferring in conference and things of that nature. And I, they have some quotes in the lawsuit from 
Yeah. Uh, one that stuck out to me was John Beeline of Michigan, uh, Go Blue this weekend, um, who said that, you know, and he's very <laughs> honest, he said that, you know, we don't want players going to our rivals with our playbook. Uh, and so that's probably closer to what the actual rationale is for the NCAA. Well, then, uh, but, but wouldn't, that, wouldn't that demonstrate that these restrictions or that these rules can be or objectives could be achieved in some kind of a less restrictive manner? Uh, I, I mean, if this is just about the playbook, uh, you, you, could, you could certainly craft rules designed to uh, you know, limit, uh, limit transfers, uh, unfettered transfers to non-conference schools without any hesitation. I mean, if, if it's all about the playbook, they're going to have the playbook a year down the road anyway, so making them sit out a year still going to give the you know, successor school access to a playbook. Uh, but there's certainly, uh, there are certainly um, approaches that can be taken that are far less extreme than requiring a student to sit out one year. But, uh, you know, this went, this went beyond that in the case of Johnny Vassar. They've converted, they basically ran him off, they cut him, they allegedly falsified his time records and converted, they tried to convert his athletic scholarship to an academic scholarship, and that in and of itself is a big deal because he loses uh, the continuity of practicing with the team and uh, access to the training facilities and the doctors uh, so, I mean, there, there are a lot of subplots that are part of this rather than just a challenge to the rule generally. Yeah, and I think Vassar's argument was that he's essentially without a team now because of the transfer rule because other coaches are also looking out for themselves, their jobs, their career prospects, and they want to win now. They don't want to wait for a player to come along and wait, sit out a year and take up a scholarship spot sitting out. So, and that makes Could- a lot of sense. I mean, I think... You know, these other other programs might be interested, but you know they they have other recruits coming in between now and then. It's a it's a win now mentality in college sports. Dan, Dan, it raises a question: If a coach, let's say, let's say Notre Dame or St. John's, wanted to offer Vassar a spot, knowing that he couldn't play until the second year, would Vassar count as one of the thirteen scholarships in the year he doesn't play? I don't think so. I, I don't know. I'm not a NCAA rules expert to the extent that I would know that, but uh, I don't believe so. I believe it's, you know, sort of an active player's count during that time period. Um, I I can't believe a good player wouldn't be able to find a spot somewhere unless there was a real ramification uh, in in that it would count towards a scholarship. Yeah, and and maybe, maybe it's not that he can't find a spot anywhere, but sort of a spot that's he feels will help you know, push his career forward, sort of a bigger school. Maybe he can play at a smaller D1 school or some other division school who could offer him financial aid. But um, I don't know. I don't know. It does seem, you know, if he was really one of these highly touted recruits and this happened to him, you'd think that there would still be a good number of schools calling and waiting on him to transfer because you do see the transfer rule being used fairly frequently still with, uh, you know, for whatever reason, kid leaves home, gets homesick, you know, yeah. doesn't get along with the coaching staff that well, and, and usually the, they land on their feet and, and, and find the, the better fit for them in the future. So um, I guess that begs the question of whether whether the current rule is actually working or not. Um, and, you know, we talked about – go ahead. 
No, the rule, the, the system works for those who make the rules. The, the, those who make the rules draft the rules for the benefit of the of the of the NCAA and the member institution, not so much the players. It sounds, you know, some of the rationale that's used to justify the rules sound like they're for the protection of the players. But notably, in almost every instance, they act as constraints or restraints on player movement rather than to truly help the player. And wh- whether this uh, rule survives a rule of reason analysis, I, I don't know. But I can certainly think of a few less restrictive alternatives that could be imposed uh, to, to achieve the objectives that the NCAA is looking out for. So I, I, I'm surprised it's taken this long uh, for the one-year waiting period rule to be challenged because this truly does raise a lot of restraint of trade issues um, that, that seem fair, fairly obvious at the surface. Um, it, 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 in your knowledge, has, has, has there ever been a case like this filed? Yeah, there has been. Um, I believe there was one filed in them. What, North I'm California? Sure I'm going to be um, talking ahead of myself here because I haven't looked this up in a while. But I believe one was kicked out on procedural grounds that they uh-huh. uh, didn't adequately represent the proper uh, market. Um, and so it got kicked. And I believe it may even be the same lawyer who filed this case. Um, but, I, you know, I, we'd have to go back and kind of look through that. Um, analysis and see what happened with that specific lawsuit, but it, it's certainly been, uh, you know, although it's coming back into the news now, it's certainly been a rule that has been in the in the news challenged frequently. You know, you saw a few stories within this lawsuit, particularly one with with Wisconsin coach Bo Ryan, who notably made the news again today um, because a woman who this is kind of a tangent, but. A woman who he was allegedly having an affair with just sued uh, Wisconsin, or not Wisconsin, but nine officials at Wisconsin, including the athletic director, um, over their failed actions. Once she reported the uh, the way that he acted, it doesn't get into specifics, so we don't really know what that means just yet. I'm assuming that we will at some point. Um, and, and so he was back in the news today in not a great way, but th- it also uses him as a specific example because he was at another University of Wisconsin school similar to the University of California Network. University of Wisconsin has a bunch of different schools. He was at a different school being paid way less on a less higher stage, was hired by UW-Madison, the biggest school in the network, um, given a huge page rage, comes in right away and plays. Meanwhile, one of his players that same year decides he wants to transfer to BYU that player has to sit out a year. So they used him as, as sort of the prime example for hypocrisy in sports and I think or hypocrisy in the transfer rule. And I think they, you know, they did that not only because that was a good example, but also because it was in the big 10. So um, it's, it's something that's been around for a while. And I think, I think part of the reason why that it's not challenged as frequently as we've seen maybe O'Bannon and we've seen Jenkins and we've seen Alston, which also there's some rumors going around that that case may be settling as well, which I think would be big news, but we're not quite there yet, um, is because, you know, I don't think it would take down the whole system, right? This is sort of just one of one of the side rules that even if they do rule that this is in violation of federal antitrust rules, that's, a, that's sort of a chink in the armor for... Uh, the NCAA, but it's, it's not that I'm using so many terrible analogies or euphemisms well, right now. It's not, it won't take down the house of cards, if you will. Whereas the Jenkins case, which challenges 
the NCAA rules more broadly as an antitrust violation would, in fact, create this free market system where you could pay players. That's a that's a much more sexy lawsuit for for lawyers to go after rather than just taking on the transfer rule. But um, well, well, where's the where's the money in the transfer rule? I can understand in taking the O'Bannon case. The lawyers who filed suit uh, were looking to create a common fund out of which players were paid for their name, image, and likeness, and that common fund would be used to pay the attorney's fees if the attorneys were able to succeed. What's, what, what is the economic incentive for a lawyer to take a case like this on a contingency and go down that antitrust rabbit hole for the next three years? Right. I mean, is, it's... It's a fees case, right? So they would get their fees paid. They're asking for de- declaratory relief. They're also um, asking for a breach of contract action against Northwestern, although I am I was kind of racking my brain to see w- where they would really come up with a big damages number here. And, mm-hmm. and what they allege is that uh, when Vassar's scholarship was converted, and they call it the scholarship a contract, when it was converted from an athletic one to an academic one, he lost these certain benefits that were worth X amount of dollars, but I mean that's that number to me. One year of scholarship at most is still in the you know five digits. It's relatively small, um, so you have to wonder kind of. And maybe I'm not thinking this all the way through as far as where there where there's damages are possible. But you know if you look at O'Bannon, right? They 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 sought I don't know however many forty million I think forty or fifty million dollars in attorneys fees from the NCAA. Um, and I think that's still pending. I can't remember if the judge has approved that request or not. So I think at the end of the day, that's sort of where the attorney's interest lies. Um, and this is this is factually, you know, we haven't seen NCAA and Northwestern's response yet, but it's a pretty sexy case as far as some of the facts that are out there. So um, if even half, if, if even a tenth of this is true, exactly, uh, it, it's going to be bad. If, if, if a tenth of it isn't true, then it, then it might be sanctionable. But uh, it, it's this, this sounds like more than a sexy case. This is a case that could you know that, that could change the entire system of uh, restrictions on on transferability of players because it attacks every step in the process. You know, in order before you can even transfer, you have to have permission of your own school to even talk to another school. Your coach, and we see instances of this happen before the coach refuses to allow the transfer or refuses to allow the uh, the, 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 the the, the communication to take place between the uh, athlete and and the and the new school. I think a I think a rule that makes sense is you know the, the one of the goals uh, underlying the the one year sitting out rule is that you don't want other colleges to start recruiting players that are that are on current teams. It would it would create a chaotic system where players would be recruited more heavily than they were in high school. I, I think one alternative approach would be. Uh, while while schools can't recruit the players, I think the players should be free to initiate conversations with whomever they want. That's not called recruiting. That's called um, asking for a job, asking to be hired. It's what it's what it's what you know. You know, adults should be permitted to do in any trade, in any career. Uh, so I think the uh, I, I think the fear of endless recruiting of of players in, on on current college teams is somewhat overblown by the NCAA as a false justification. Uh, I, I think you could put a you could keep a ban on on, on uh, overt recruiting and allow players to initiate uh, a, a finite number of conversations. Maybe maybe pick you know two schools or three schools and and get a chance to bypass uh, having to ask your current college for permission, which makes no sense to me. 
Right. And it, it kind of reminds you of, um, you know, my freshman year roommate in college transferred to another school and, um, you know, obviously he didn't have to wait a year to continue his academic career. Um, but he, he applied to those other schools, right? So he reached out to them with interest and they ultimately accepted him and he went. So I, I feel like that is almost a similar process as to what you're describing here and how it would look going forward. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, whether coaches and schools will, you know, abuse that is a whole other rule and who's going to enforce that. You know, we've seen the NCAA have its trouble enforcing that. And, and, and frankly, that seems like a lot of work if there's schools that are trying to subtly contact players by saying, Hey, we would, we would be interested if, if you're interested. So, um, it would create a lot, a lot of gray area. I think any way you think about any way you could draw it up. So, um, well, it could lead. It it could and and should lead to reform in this area. I believe the rules are somewhat are draconian and and stacked heavily against the player and in favor of the member institutions and to the NCAA. I, I think they they stand they could stand to be relaxed somewhat. Uh, they are somewhat extreme, um, and and uh, I think this is the case that's going to you know break the camel's back on restrictions against transfer. I, I you know, believe. I mean, it's hard to believe these allegations without hearing. Uh, from Northwestern or the NCAA, but th- this sounds, at least in the draft in the complaint, it's a very compelling set of allegations. I agree, and I think I'm going to pump the brakes on a little bit. I, I think it is compelling, but I also, um, you know, we've been lawyers long enough to know that sometimes you need to kind of wait and see and, and hear from the other side. And um, I, some of this is almost so outrageous, it's almost unbelievable. So um, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I think enough on that one for now. Maybe once that thing really starts rolling, we'll, I'm sure we'll have more to say about it once we hear from the NCAA and, and Northwestern's perspective and see how that kind of fits into some of these other antitrust attacks on the NCAA. But I think you know one other one other area we wanted to hit relatively quickly here as we're running out of time is uh, some of the concussion litigations that are going on and. Um, another new lawsuit that was filed, which we saw in the Southern District of Florida, right? Right, right. Next door, the, the federal courthouse in Fort Lauderdale is physically situated next door to the law office of Becker and Polyakov. So we're adjacent to the courthouse. And uh, last week, you broke the story. By the way, I, I, I've always wanted to ask you, one of my uh, one of my investigative tools in discovering new lawsuits is I check the daily court filings in Southern District of New York, Southern District of Florida. I didn't see that initially. How did you learn of the suit? You did break the story, didn't you? I, I, I mean, I, did, I shouldn't be taking credit for it because I really didn't. I Somewhere else broke it, some sort of unusual mainstream had. It was almost like a side note uh, that this, this lawsuit had been filed. And I said, wow, I hadn't seen that before. And I pulled up you know, PACER, which is the court filing uh, mechanism in federal court. And I went and pulled it and then kind of took a look around to see if anyone else was reporting it and, um, you know, just posted what I, what I like to do. I'm, I'm a big believer in access to legal materials for the public. So I posted the PDF of the complaint that I pulled. I was the first one to do that um, and, and really discuss oh. the allegations on um, my suit. And then, uh, just put a tweet out about it, and that that went a little bit viral. It wasn't too big, but 
Um, I think it, it, gar- it garnered a significant response because they were talking not one player or two players. It was 26 players, and they had somewhat of a new legal theory uh, in, in, designed, I, I think, to avoid uh, being dragged back into Pennsylvania uh, to be before Judge Anita Brody. I think the, the new lawyers who filed suit on behalf of the 26, places, 26 players want to keep the case separate from the Pennsylvania proceeding and get a trial and, and, and a forum before a, a different federal uh, judicial circuit. So uh, they, they differentiated their lawsuit uh, by focusing on the declaratory relief and, and a recognition of, of quote-unquote, living CTE. And what do you think of, like, their strategy to uh, – I mean, I think this was inevitable that CTE would emerge uh, as a standalone issue in litigation. But how did they do it differently than what took place previously? Right. So – CTE is obviously like this the huge discrepancy now in litigation. So kind of ac- across the board, we've seen it discussed um, in, in many different contexts, including the Will Smith movie, uh, which kind of fell on its face, Concussion. Um, but <laughs> th- right. the thing with CTE is that there's no reliable way to diagnose it, at least from what most people say, until someone passes away. And then once they die, they can take a look at the brain and diagnose. I think there's a certain way to look at the various enzymes in the brain, although I'm no doctor, so I don't know that for sure. Uh, But they've been working on a way to diagnose CTE while a person's living. And um, so this lawsuit is alleging that they've come to that, that that science is now caught up to that point. And I don't know if that's true or not. And there's certainly going to be, if this this suit gets along far enough, there's certainly going to be a lot of expert uh, medical testimony on that point. But um, the interesting part about this is during it, the bigger NFL concussion litigation, which is now settled and which is now pending in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. The oh, by the way, there we're, is- we're going we're to get a decision on certiorari a week from Monday. I think the, uh, the, 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 the appeal of the NFL concussion settlement um, has been fully briefed before SCOTUS. I think we might be waiting on a rep- one more reply brief, but it, it has been distributed and uh, will be considered at the Justices Conference this upcoming Friday. Uh, I think that might be December uh, 3rd. And by the following Monday, a week from probably a week, you know, maybe December 6th, we'll learn whether the Supreme Court will in fact grant certiorari. I don't think either of us expects the Supreme Court to accept the case. Yeah, we're a broken record there with all the Supreme Court petitions. But again, this one's... But, but, but that's the easy thing to say. Though, the easy yeah. thing to say is the court will never take the case. Court won't take the case. It's easy to stand on the, you know, the, the 60 out of like thousands that get filed and, and say, well, there's no Supreme Court issue here. Uh, I'll have to say the lawyering has been very strong for the uh, objectors. And I say the same thing in the New Jersey sports betting case, and you know the court court has to take sixty cases or, or so each year, and I think both cases are possibilities. But what ultimately harms them is um, one, you know, cl- uh, appellate courts defer to the lower courts on the propriety of a of a class action settlement or decisions in the class action context, and we don't have a circuit split. Uh, this is not an issue of great; it's an issue of importance, but I don't know if it's the kind of issue that can trump. Uh, the presence of a circuit split yeah. or and the I, absence of I a circuit split. Importance is obviously a big word. And that's so Supreme Court usually takes multiple, 
various buckets of cases, we'll say, and two of them are two of the biggest ones are sort of national importance and what we call circuit splits. So if two of the lower courts are disagreeing on an issue, but that's not, not here, as Dan said. But the other one, importance, while this seems like an important issue for, <coughs> excuse me, many athletes and ex-NFL players, that's really just a very small subset of the population. And so I don't think this really falls into the national <coughs> excuse me, bucket. And that's why I just don't but, see there basically any chance of them taking this case. I mean, the sports betting but, one, I think there's a much bigger argument to be made that this impacts a bunch of... Obviously, there's five states that are coming in and saying okay. that this is important to them. So, yeah, state, um, state, state rights on a whole um, assortment of issues. But right. you know, the concussion case could have a channeling effect on how um, youth leagues... And all sports leagues uh, deal with the issue of, uh, of of treating concussions and educating players about concussions. So maybe one way to look at this, even though it, it's a long shot, no matter how, how you slice it, is that this is more than just about the you know hundreds of players or a couple thousand players who may be covered in the class. This could impact the treatment of of concussions at all levels of sport. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I don't want to f- go too far astray from our CTE talk, but Oh yeah. Again, Sorry. that's how we got to this point. But uh so part of the uh NFL, the big again, the big concussion settlement was that CTE is not included. So that's actually what the issue is in front of the Supreme Court right now. Should should CTE be included? And, and the NFL's rationale for not including it and justifying a, a possible settlement without um covering without reimbursing players that have CTE is that people who have CT almost always demonstrate symptoms of these other major uh, illnesses or diseases, whatever you want to call them, such as Parkinson's, ALS, and those 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 are covered under the under the under the uh, settlement. So players are getting paid for these other diseases, and so why should we pay them for CTE if we can't diagnose CTE? And so now this new lawsuit's coming along, saying, "Wait a minute, we have the technology." You should be able to diagnose living CTE, and and this, so it takes a slightly different uh, approach. It's going through the workers' comp laws, but um, it's saying that you know players should be reimbursed while they have living CTE, um, you know, for what happened to them while they were a player. I mean, it. it, it I mean, both sides' arguments make sense at a superficial level, but. Um... If the technology or the the, the ability to uh, detect and diagnose CT in the living is accomplished indisputably, how would that play out under an approved settlement agreement? Would the, would there be? Uh, I mean, this class action settlement would be would would have a finality to it, where the side the two sides wouldn't be able would they be able to make a down the road adjustment? To include living CTE diagnoses, if they if 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 they were permitted to under the agree, are they permitted to under the agreement? That's a great question. I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, my sense is that there could be further litigation challenging to if you know ultimately the settlement misses Supreme Court review yeah. and is ultimately confirmed, finalized, signed, sealed, yeah. delivered. The settlements are you know the, the money is being paid out. Um, I'm sure that's an extremely difficult standard to, to reopen yeah. that, but uh, I, I would imagine that there would be an argument to be made at least. Yeah, and all the while, all while this is going on, none of the retirees, none of the um, uh, 
players that would be covered under the settlement have been paid to date. Uh, this is a case that uh, traces back. I think it was filed in 2012 or 2013. And here we are, you know, three, four years later, and, and, and none of the proceeds, settlement proceeds, have been able to be paid to any players. And, and, and you know, time is ticking. These players, you know, on the one hand, uh, there's a sense of urgency about providing you know, medical care and financial um, remuneration to, to the players. But on the other hand, uh, there's the issue of the fairness of the settlement and whether it improperly excludes many who should be covered under the settlement. Yeah, and I would also say whether those conditions, allegedly at least caused by the NFL, are actually pressuring the other side to settle this for amounts mm-hmm. that are less than what the true value of the settlement of the lawsuit is. And I think that to a certain extent that probably happened and it's just sort of the dynamics of, of the litigation here. But it, it's really unfortunate that um, the fact that these people are, you know, physically, emotionally, whatever way hurting and are, are sick and they're not getting the treatment they need it is a reason to sell it for less than they should. Um, but it's just kind of how it works. And, and it's ghoulish that the NFL is dra- – and I, I, in part, the NFL could have made this problem go away a long, long time ago. Uh, the amount of money that they settled this case for somewhere in the – I, I know it's uncapped, but I think by most measures, uh, $750 million, a billion dollars. The NFL's revenue stream on an annual basis is many, many multiples of that. And um, th- this, is, this is really a tragedy that so many that have suffered, who have suffered – are still, you know, are, are are still, you know, being left out in the cold without treatment, without compensation, uh, and the NFL is fighting on so many fronts. You know, they they fought the the, the concussion case for for a while, but now they're fighting with their own insurers. Uh, the amount of money that that the NFL makes annually and the revenues that are generated annually, uh, we shouldn't be sitting here in 2016 on the verge of 2017 without without these players, uh, you know, have, for, retired players having received uh, the kind of you know the kind of benefits that they're entitled to. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I, I think you did mention the insurance coverage case that's going on right now, and I know that we just in the last month or so got. Uh, a big ruling and I think it's New York state court that um, there's going to be some discovery allowed to go forward in that case against the NFL. And there's, they approved 50 depositions and uh, I think I would want to depose Roger Goodell 50 times. If if I could use my 50 as the plaintiff's attorney, I would just interview him for 50 hours. Uh, I'd get, I'd get summary judgment. I mean, just to, uh, put some context on this lawsuit, the NFL is not actually hope, is hoping not to have to pay any money towards the settlement that uh, the NFL is in litigation with several of its uh, you know, liability insurers uh, to foot the cost of the settlement payments. So uh, the, the insurers have filed a lawsuit in the New York County Supreme Court uh, seeking a declaratory judgment. Uh, as to their obligations to fund the settlement and have asked the NFL for all sorts of documents, documents that could have been helpful in the, in the class action litigation that could still be hul- helpful to some of the plaintiffs who've opted out of the class action, uh, documents uh, uh, detailing what, informa- what, what the NFL knew about concussions, how, how long ago they knew about it, and what, what information was at their disposal, information that the NFL doesn't want to part with. And, and that's what the battle has been over this case, to delay uh, the NFL having to turn over materials to their insurance company that could compromise their settlement, that could compromise future cases. 
Exactly. And obviously also they, they don't want any, you know, 50 of their employees or agents being deposed as well. And I think, you know, this type of information, you know, obviously wouldn't be accessible to the public right away, but it's the type of stuff that over the years of sharing it with other litigations through discovery processes and other things, um, it could get out there. And obviously, you know, we've seen, um, as in, like, let's say the Derrick Rose case where there was sort of this leaking deposition, all these bad quotes coming out from his deposition. I mean, you can kind of envision a world where Goodell or some of the other higher-ups at the NFL have kind of bitten their tongue during a deposition and it starts leaking out. It just looks terrible for, for the league. And yeah. so I think, you know, that's obviously the type of thing that they're trying to avoid. And um, the the interesting thing for me will be to see whether this case with the insurers ultimately settles, whether they come to an agreement where they each pay a certain point or what. And, and the timing of that especially because um, – you know, if it settles, I believe that the NFL appealed this decision, so we have to see where that goes. But, uh, you know, if it well, settles... The NFL, the NFL sort of... I'm sorry, the NFL uh, didn't lose yet at the at, at, with the insurance company case. They've asked for a stay of all discovery until, I think, not only until after the Supreme Court weighs, or, or decides whether to grant cert, but I think the NFL is looking for a more, more of a blanket, open-ended stay that lasts even beyond the Supreme Court proceeding and would potentially cover any opt-out litigation. So from the NFL's vantage point, uh, they, they would like not to have to share any documents with their insurers for, for many more years to come. And, uh, the, and the insurers are rightfully saying, well, come on, this case has been going on since 2012 and you've stonewalled us for four years. When are we going to get documents? When are we going to be able to take discovery? You know, memories get stale. Uh, and I can see the insurer's uh, point of view on this. So the NFL is in a position now where they're facing, uh, they're facing the day of reckoning with the insurance companies and the kind of information that they wanted to keep out of the class action, they're going to have to share with their insurers by March. Right. And so uh, obviously want to keep an eye on and, and the interplay of these three lawsuits as well as you know yep. numerous other concussion lawsuits moving NHL, forward. NHL, uh, World Wrestling yeah. Entertainment, <laughs> right. NCAA. There are more concussion lawsuits than in, I think, any other uh, sector of sports law. There, there are, they're, they're just, they're just, you know, uh, been filed in, in, in like record numbers in the last year or two. I think the NCAA probably has more concussion suits brought against that organization than in any other, the, any of the other sports leagues. But if there's a sport, there is certainly a concussion lawsuit brought against the governing organization. I, th- I think those cases have, have grown significantly in the last year or two. Absolutely. Um, and so I think we'll touch on one topic, and it's probably going to be more of a preview because we want to do a, a separate podcast on the upcoming NBA collective bargaining agreement, which, uh, and this is a bit of news, but it's it's rumored to be finalized the week of December 5th, I think, or December 3rd, that first that week right? of December. Oh. Yeah. So they've come out and said that that's sort of the target week to get it finalized, which that date, unsurprisingly, has sort of slid back, slid back a week or two here or there, just because, you know, it takes a long time. There's so many details in these things um, that need to be finalized and they need to be agreed on by both sides. Uh, but we, we've, in the last two weeks or so, we found out some interesting details. Uh, Kevin O'Connor from The Ringer, Bill, Bill Simmons' website, had an article 
come out with a, with a few interesting points, uh, one of which I want to talk about just because it kind of today, because it kind of ties into some of the other stuff we're talking about, is that the NCAA, or excuse me, NCAA, I can't keep these sports straight anymore. The NBA is considering adding a formal domestic violence policy to its existing rules. And so the NBA rule right now is that if you're found guilty or, you know, uh, plead guilty to a um, felony, and I believe it has to be a certain type of felony, I'd have to go back and look at the exact language, but uh, you, you have a minimum suspension. I believe that number is 10 games. So um, a lot of these domestic violence cases fall outside of that window, as we've seen, whether they're misdemeanors or something else. And, and certainly Adam Silver has always had the ability to suspend players, and we've seen that he has done so. You know, He suspended Jeffrey Taylor, I think, 24 or 25 games two years ago, and then recently um, suspended Nick or um, Darren Collison uh, eight games this year. And... Um, It'll really be interesting to see what they do. One of the things that was reported in, in the Ringer's article was that they were going to take the focus away from, and not necessarily, there is going to be a games component to it, right? A minimum amount of games, such as how the NFL looks, at least it appears. But they're going to put a greater focus on the treatment side. And this is something that, Dan, that you and I, and we had Diana Moskovitz come on and talk about, I believe, in our second episode uh, about you know what should a domestic violence policy really look like? What should it aim to achieve? And, and a lot of the things that we've seen with the NFL and the MLB policies so far is that they're kind of missing the boat on the treatment part. And I, I think the NFL is probably the worst example of this, and it was frankly it was the first one out, so they've um, had the most to lose, I would say. But um, It'll be interesting to see what the NBA's policy looks like compared to those two, because you know, really, that is the biggest issue. You know, how we how can we have how can we make sure the victim's okay? How can we make sure that their needs are met? How can we help the player become a better person, recover from this? Um, forget the sport, forget you know how that how that part. And don't forget it altogether. But that's just the second most important thing right now. The first most important thing is. is making sure this doesn't happen again and making sure that there's, you know, an educational aspect to it. So I think we've seen, um, and, you know, he's my favorite commissioner, Adam Silver, um, be a very progressive advocate on a number of issues. And I think this is just be the most, the the latest issue to do that on. So that's one that I'm really interested to see. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. We can, I can move on to the next one. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, it's not a surprise that the NBA is taking the, the mantle of leadership on, an, on yet another issue. And uh, I, I would expect that when, when all is said and done, that their, their domestic violence policy will set the standard uh, for other leagues to follow. I, I fully expect that. Uh, I, don't view the, I, I haven't read about domestic violence being a, a, a chronic problem in the NBA. You have to have a policy, of course. Uh, but the NFL and the NBA are like night and day in the number of incidents. Uh, of course, the, the National Football League is a much bigger league. There are more players. Uh, but uh, I, I don't see domestic violence as being a, a hot-button issue in the NBA. I'm, I'm, more, I'm, I'm curious how um, – th- there are other issues that I'm uh, concerned about. Uh, I, I, think, I think the, um, the, 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 the floor, the, the minimum salary, the mid-level exceptions, I see, uh, I see too much of a disparity uh, in the earnings in that uh, a, a, a gross 
a disproportionate percentage go to the highest earning players in the league, and then once once a team exceeds the cap. Uh, I, I, I see the you know veterans uh, coming in at too low of a number, like a million dollars. I'd like to see, I'd like to see additional mid-level exceptions created. I'd like to see the minimum salary cre- uh, enhanced. I'd like to see a raising of the salary levels at the lowest possible level. And then another issue that's always bothered me. I don't know if anyone has raised it or if this is even being covered in the new CBA. But the issue of international buyouts. Uh, these these buyout provisions and, and Ricky Rubio's from several years back stands out as one shining example that under the current CBA, t- the NBA teams aren't allowed to pay any po- – or they're only permitted to pay a small amount of the buyout. So the player that wants to come over – one has to pay his own buyout, uh, you know, pay millions of dollars to his European team, can't get any assistance from the NBA team, uh, and and comes in at a low enough, uh, comes in at a really low number of a salary that a, a, a disproportionate percentage of the of the player's salary is being used to pay his buyout. Uh, I'd like to I'd like to see uh, some tweaking of that rule to provide greater relief for international players who want to come over. Yeah, it's an interesting rule, um, and I, I think. That small market teams have been opposed to changing it in the past because they think that the big market teams have these greater pools of capital, and obviously those buyout that buyout money doesn't kind of get the salary cap, <clears throat> and so allowing the big market teams to spend extra dollars to bring over players gives them a bit of a competitive advantage. That's at least mm-hmm. been the argument. I don't know how much I agree with that. You know, obviously, in cases of Ricky Rubio and Nikola Mirotic and others that we've seen the buyouts happen before, those are players that have are, are controlled by the team because they're former draft picks. Any team can't just go over and get them. But there's certainly other players out there that are more or less free agents who, um, if they decide to leave their European or other region of the world team, they could become valuable NBA players, and we've seen those players come over as well. Maybe not stars, but you know, good contributors. And the thought is that the big market teams would just outbid smaller market teams, uh, which would set up a uncompetitive advantage for them. So, I, you know, I don't know. That's sort of a team side interfighting. The, the problem again is we see with a lot of these issues is that the, the international players don't really have a dog in the game. Although, you know, they're. The, the, the current players in the NBA are the ones that are arguing on behalf of them. So we've seen so things like rookie-scale contracts in the past, which basically screw rookie players and a lot more of the money in the salary cap pool to the veteran players. Um, so that's, you know, it, I, I don't know. I haven't seen that being argued as something um, that will change. But there's one issue that really caught my eye and um, that I find just fascinating, and that's, uh, this sort of, on, on the surface, it seems like a minute change to uh, the NBA D League salaries, which currently are any NBA D League player makes between nineteen and twenty six thousand dollars a year. So it's obviously, uh, you know, it, that's only for part of the year, but it's still a very small wage. It, it's a true minor league in the sense that they're really roughing it to get by. Their their living wages are usually paid for, but it's just not a lot of money and compared to. A player that goes to Europe, um, it's, you know, tiny. So they're making a huge sacrifice by saying in, in, in the NBA D-League. There's rumors that those salaries are going to be increased to anywhere between fifty and $75,000. And so I think that changes the dynamic quite a bit of what the NBA D-League could be. And particularly, it changes the dynamic what the NBA D-League could be for high school athletes 
that want to go a different route than the NCAA. And that route would be going from the NBA to one year in the D-League to then being drafted into the NBA. Um, you know, going from basically to college where you're getting a semester and a half of an education paid for to an NBA D-League team where you're making $75,000, but you're at least stateside. You know, we've seen players go abroad and make up to one point, I think um, uh, Emmanuel Moutier, blank me for a second, who's the Denver Nuggets point guard, I think he made $1.2 million playing in China when he did this route going overseas. But, you know, obviously for a lot of high school seniors, the idea of going to live in China for a year when you're 19 is, is a little bit terrifying. And and I rightfully so. I think that's a, that's a major cultural jump. Um, but the idea of going to play in the next state over uh, for $75 and playing professional ball may be more enticing than going to the NCAA. I don't know. Yeah. It's an interesting role. I think it has the the, pro, the chance to to improve the quality of the D League, to make the D League a you know true development league and uh, raise the quality and, and act as a true farm system or a good farm system for the NBA. Uh, so I so, saw you know nineteen to twenty six thousand dollars, not a lot of money to live on, right. uh, for for highly skilled professionals who even though they're in the D League, they're among the best in the world at their craft. Uh, or at least the best in the country at their craft, certainly one of the top uh, you know, 500 to 1,000 players in all of the United States. So to raise those salary levels to uh, entice uh, you know, you know, more, high school, more players who otherwise wouldn't have viable options other than Europe, I, I think that's going to keep many players home and, and just raise the quality level of the D-League and make it a true feeder league for the NBA. Absolutely. And, and just to... Just so everyone's on the same page, the NBA's one and done rule is an NBA rule, not an NCAA rule. So it basically says that you need to be 19 years of age at a certain date, and so that puts um, any, they can go anywhere, right? They can go to the NCAA, they can go to the D League. Currently, we've seen players already go this route as early as 2009, um, go to the D League, and then eventually get drafted into the NBA. So it's an it's an option that exists, and now it's potentially a more intriguing option from a financial perspective and because it's a more financial you know intriguing option i think not only are we going to see the high school players going but we're going to see less players going to europe anyways and so it's going to make the league better in general which will make it almost a more appealing option for these high school players um, and kind of help everyone out and i think it's a very forward again forward thinking move by the nba you know you want to keep your your talent home. These teams are affiliated with NBA teams. You want it to be as competitive as possible. They're in kind of sister cities to markets usually. So the Chicago has a brand new team. It's just kind of out in the suburbs. Um, you know, I think that they can work hand in hand with the Bulls and, and really, um, hopefully, you know, become a profitable business as well. So, um, so yeah, we'll see. But we'll we'll talk about that and we'll talk about a number of other issues related to the NBA collective bargaining agreement. I'm sure we'll touch on how that relates to labor relations in other sports, such as the NFL, which are as testy as ever. And then major league baseball, which we thought were good, but their deadlines coming up as well. And there's been reports that, uh, we may get a lockout there from the owners. So, um, but I think we're a little bit over right now. So, uh, thanks for listening in. We really appreciate it. Um, if you could do us a Thanksgiving favor and go to our iTunes page and leave us a review, that would be fantastic. Tell your friends about it. Good reviews. Yeah, leave good reviews. Um, 
even if you don't think so, we'd appreciate that. <laughs> um, but Dan, thanks for uh, thanks yeah. for jumping on the day after Thanksgiving and uh, for an extra an extra long special Thanksgiving Day edition, Thanksgiving Day after edition. We covered a lot of topics, and you know I enjoy you know sort of going around the horn um, because it's difficult to to focus only on one issue and we broadcast every week because in any given week. There's so much that's happening, new cases, uh, um, you, you know, the, the, the breadth of issues that we could talk about are, are just, you know, you know, just immense. And each week brings uh, new controversy. So um, um, I, I'd like to keep this style, at least in part, going, going forward to try to hit upon a number of issues in one podcast. But I like the interviews, too. But uh, we'll find our stride. But uh, I enjoyed it, as always, and um, looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. I will be... At the Michigan Ohio State game tomorrow, maybe the highlight of my fandom career, if there is such a thing. So, um, hopefully, I'm wearing a Michigan jersey into the shoe, which um, may not end well. So, if if this podcast doesn't continue, you'll know that uh, things didn't end well for me. But um, and we'll see I'm buying and I'm buying a new iPhone tomorrow. So, you know, big 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 days ahead for both of us. So. <laughs> big I'll talk to you, uh, I guess I'll talk to you in a few, and uh, on to week seven.